I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Hello, Miriam. Good to see you too. And excited to uh, speak with Seth Dobrin today. I am too. He has a long history with data science and other areas of science. I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts, both from his work at IBM and the startups he's worked at and other Fortune 500s before that. Yeah, lots of lots of interesting experience that Seth can talk about. So let's, let's um, start the interview. Let's do it. Today on NAI We Trust, we are so pleased to welcome Seth Dobrin. Seth is the Global Chief AI Officer of IBM. Before that, he served as Vice President and Chief Data Officer for IBM Analytics, where he was responsible for the transformation of the analytics business operations. He has spent his career scaling and using existing technologies to address previously intractable problems at scale. He is a founding member of the International Society of Data Chief Data Officers. He has previously worked at Motorola, Monsanto, and several startups in between. He holds a PhD in genetics. There are so many different facets of this we are so interested to explore with you today. Uh, so thank you, Seth, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So Seth, we'd love to start with understanding your journey to AI. You started out in uh, microbiology and genetics. Uh, how did that lead you to AI? And how did you end up thinking about responsible, trustworthy AI? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And one I get asked all the time because genetics doesn't seem connected to, to AI. But if you look back at the origins of what we think of as data science and, and even big data, it stemmed from, from two industries or two uh, domains, uh, astrophysics and genetics slash genomics. And so back in the 90s, when I was working on my, pro on my PhD, uh, it was during the time of the Human Genome Project. And we were dealing with massive amounts of data, like, you know, back then, or even today, it would be considered large data sets, you know, tens or hundreds of gigabytes of image files, lots of unstructured data, you know, millions of columns and rows of data. And, and so we started, you know, we being the field of, of genetics and genomics started using uh, the same tools that we use today for programming for data science, which are R and Python. It was pre-version one days, but um, even if you look at R, you know, one of the largest package repositories for R is Bioconductor, which, you know, some of my colleagues and myself contributed to way back in the day. And so, you know, the leap from genetics to AI is actually fairly, not a leap, but it's a continuous journey. And even throughout my career in each of those, you know, kind of places where you called out that I worked, we use the same kind of tools to analyze the data and make advances in the technology. And so it's much more of a, a straight line uh, than you might expect from, from human genetics to, to the field of AI that we think about today. In terms of responsible or, or what we call trustworthy AI, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think I've always been an advocate, well, not I think, but I've always been an advocate for the responsible use of technology. Uh, I was an advocate in the field of genetics when you know all of the samples that were collected were essentially Caucasians, not essentially, but they were Caucasians. 
and we made an effort to expand the field, uh, the, the sam samples into at least some other subsets of populations, and that, that continues today. Uh, I've always been a champion for, uh, for, for women and underserved minorities in sciences and technology, and, and that relates directly to fairness um, and transparency in, in terms of how AI is, is consumed. And I think if you look to where we are today over the course of the last 18 years or 18 months between the pandemic uh, and the social justice movements that happened this summer, uh, you know, the pandemic caused the huge adoption of AI across the world. Uh, we had to adopt it in order to, to manage in, in the, new, the new environment that we were thrust into as a, as a, as a global society. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, the social justice movement high, highlighted the need for more, uh, more justice in, in every part of our life, which includes uh, AI and how we interact with it. It's a, it's, it's a really great through line between the, the early work uh, in your PhD on, 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 on health and on the genome and, and all of the data that, that, that we were generating around that to this moment that we're in now where we're thinking about these ethical questions that you just touched on across so many domains from you know, health to uh, finance to uh, you know, municipal services, whatever it may be. And so I wanna just pause on that and, and hear a little bit more about this transition that you've made and that it sounds like the field has made from these areas of health, genomic technology into you know, virtually every industry sector out there. And, and, and your own mandate has kind of shifted throughout that process. Maybe, could you just walk us through kind of what you've seen over that period as AI has gone from a niche technology in a couple of areas to this global widespread juggernaut and, and, and what, what you've observed and what you're seeing now in terms of how it's evolving. Yeah, and so that's a, that's a great point. And, and, you know, people used to ask me what my definition of data science was right before we started using the term, you know, AI to, to encompass that plus other things. You know, data science is essentially applying the scientific method to solve business problems. And, and about 10, 15 years ago is, is when um, the, you know, companies and, and, and particularly it was the, you know, the native internet born companies that started applying the tools of machine learning and data science and what we think of as AI today to start solving business problems. You know, things like, uh, you know, Google was more than 15 years ago when they, you know, when they built, um, you know, their search capability. Um, and, uh, and Facebook started doing it for, uh, for classifying or grouping us as individuals, doing customer segmentation, essentially. Uh, and then it started bleeding into you know, Netflix again with kind of recommendation engines and Amazon similarly with, with recommendation engines. But then it started bleeding into how do you apply these same tools and technologies to solve business problems for everyone else? Um, and, and that relates to, to my journey. So, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was at Monsanto, uh, you know, I started applying AI or my team started applying AI to solve a problem in, in agriculture, which is that there's only so much land you can test on and you can't really grow your pipeline without finding new land. And, and the whole industry was essentially limited to no more new land to, to grow stuff on for a variety of reasons. 
Um, and so we started looking at how can we apply AI to move the largest step of that process, which is like a pharmaceutical pipeline, very big at the beginning, very small number of the back end. And how can we start do how can we do that to make the pipeline bigger and make our products more valuable at the back end because they've gone through more testing and more selection to select uh, products with, in our case, we're making seeds with better yield. And so, you know, we were very successful on that journey. Uh, and so then we started saying, okay, how do we apply this to solve our supply chain problems and our you know, customer relations problems and our employee problems and things like that. And so I, I stepped into a role where I built uh, our data strategy for the whole company. I built our AI strategy for the whole company and started executing it. And so that was the last five years of my journey, journey at, at Monsanto. And then coming into IBM, I was brought in to essentially do the same thing for IBM that I did at Monsanto. Um, uh, knowing that, you know, Monsanto was one of the first, you know, 10 companies to do, you know, for, you know, legacy companies, if you will, to make this transition through a digital transformation. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's kind of my journey and the progression of, you know, tied to the progression of the field and how I made a, a leap from life sciences into tech, a technology world. And as you've gone through this process a few times, I, you're, You've done it a few times and I feel like we're still at the forefront. I feel like we are still uh, in this nascent space where companies are using AI more and more. It's becoming part of the fabric of our society. And um, not many companies understand that they need to have a data governance program, that they need to have AI governance. Having gone through this a few times, would you say there are some lessons learned that are key variables that are in terms of the order you go through it or key ingredients that need to be apart or removed from this process? You know, I, I think I think there's a more fundamental issue with how we attack data and, and AI today. And, you know, I learned this serendipitously through my journey, and, and I probably didn't even acknowledge it was a problem that needed solving until a couple of years ago. And that is, we, we often do not take a human-centered approach to, to data and AI, which relates very directly to trust. And so we don't think about who's gonna be using the output of the data or the AI. We don't think about how they're gonna be using it. And we don't think about why they're gonna be using it. And by not considering those problems, you, you get into, or those, those perspectives, you don't really solve, necessarily solve a real problem. And you may not have it in a form that's consumable by the, or desirable by the ultimate end user. Um, and so, for instance, let me give you a, an example that I use all the time. It relates to trust also. Uh, and, and so, you know, let's imagine I walk into an amusement park and I have a wristband on and I scan myself in and, you know, my, I have adult children, but they still love amusement parks. And we're walking around and I get a text that says, you know, your son's favorite ride is now available with no line. Do you want us to reserve a spot? I, my, my reaction would be, what the hell? Why are you texting me? How do you know what my son's favorite ride is? This is creepy. But alternatively, had they taken a human-centered approach to this, they would have seen that, yes, I, they had the problem, right? I, want, I don't want to wait in line. Um, but they didn't have my perspective where you know, they needed to ask for my consent. So when I walked in, something should have popped up somewhere that said, hey, we want to make your experience at the amusement park better. Can we text you when your family's favorite rides are available? 
and what are your family's favorite rides, right? That creates a better experience for me and they're taking my needs and my desires into account. And back to things like GDPR and other types of regulations, I now have the option to you know, intentionally opt in or out. So that's just, just one example that I think everyone can, can relate to. In terms of how you do that, um, you know, we've, we've developed uh, a, a methodology called Enterprise Design Thinking for Data and AI um, that is intended to, to do just that. It takes a human-centered approach and trust and ethics are part of that conversation up front so that as you're understanding who's gonna be using it, what they're gonna be doing with it and why, you put trust in context of those, of those three questions. Um, and that also leads to the other part, you know, the other part that I didn't mention, which is data governance. How are you gonna use that data in a way that's consistent with the who, what, and why? And then it, you also, that leads into the AI where you're within the context of the who, what, and why, and all of them are wrapped in trust. And so that's the approach we're taking now. We use that internally. We've used that with multiple clients, um, talk about it very publicly all the time. It's really out there for the world because you know everything that, that we do at Trust you know, around responsible or trustworthy AI at IBM, we have some version of it out in the public domain. That's how important uh, you know, we think this, this is, is you know, it takes an ecosystem. It takes, you know, it takes an open ecosystem, a diverse ecosystem to build trustworthy AI and part of that is participating in that ecosystem, which means contributing to it, not just taking from it. A, a lot of great points to, to unpick there. I, I wanna just stay on this, this point for a second. I, I've seen some of IBM's tools, they're great. The, the, the Fairness 360 tool um, and, and others. And um, IBM is of course in a unique place in that you're exposed through your work to the state of adoption of these kinds of tools by other companies, smaller companies, kind of across the value chain, across different industry sectors. I'd be curious to hear what it is that you're seeing, uh, you know, kind of how far along are companies uh, right now? Um, what is the sort of general direction of travel and momentum? And what are some of the gaps that we need to be trying to fill, whether we're um, companies like IBM who are leading in this space or um, governments who are thinking about trying to, uh, you know, move the, the space into, um, you know, pro-social direction. And where, where are we um, in the macro sense and, 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 and what do we need to kind of propel ourselves in the right direction? Yeah, so from a macro sense, we're all over the place, right? I mean, you have companies that have no idea what they're doing and then you have very advanced companies. And I think let's let's talk about the very advanced companies because that that relates directly to the conversation we're having today. In the last year, two years, these companies that are that are you know very advanced in the space of data and, and AI have started realizing that as they scale their AI their AI programs and their data programs, they have a problem. They have you know some of these companies have every tool known to humankind in them and they have no way to govern the tools or the outcomes. So the AI that's being built, what standards are being used to measure its performance? How do we understand that those things are trustworthy? How do we explain these in a consistent manner, be it to regulators, employees, customers, whomever is gonna be consuming it? 
And, and so they're, they're realizing there's this need. And so they're leading the pack in, in essentially either trying to build it themselves or demanding from companies like IBM that we help them solve this problem. And so that's that those companies that are on the leading edge are really drivers for this and they know what they're doing. Uh, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. Uh, and, and, and then you have the companies that are kind of in the middle that have been dabbling, haven't really tackled the scale problems and have a whole bunch of models that they don't know how to assess for trustworthiness, right? And they're all disconnected and maybe they're not ready for a holistic AI governance program, but they should start thinking about it so they don't get in the same boat as these, these leaders. Um, but how do they assess what they have? How do they assess the programs? How do they assess, um, you know, kind of the, the, the skills that are on the ground? Right. And this is a you know, great spot where equal AI falls in and is trying to help fill the gap. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you have the, the more nascent companies who really don't know what they're doing. who just need a lot of hand holding. Um, and, you know, I think that enterprise design thinking for data and AI that I laid out helps all of them. And we've gotten really good feedback from all of those groups that, that they that they want those. Um, you know, we've built some specific capabilities in IBM to help all three of those groups. The, you know, the, the probably the most well-known is the data science and AI elite team that I started three years ago that's designed to go in and help companies that really don't know what they're doing, figure out what they should be doing, help those kind of intermediary companies figure out how do they better scale and build their models in a more scalable way. And then the more advanced companies help them solve niche, niche problems um, that maybe they haven't thought about different ways to address them. And as we think about uh, where people are in this journey, uh, it's interesting to see some of the things you've already said on the subject. For instance, in the protocol, uh, the brain trust where you've said too many data and AI projects fail because their creators rush into the technical implementations of solutions without first clearly defining what real world problems they're trying to solve, what success looks like for their business. It seems that that in some ways is similar to the human-centered approach you're talking about. And I'd love to hear more about what a success, if you were advising a company, and it sounds like you break it down into the size of the company and how developed their AI program is. Um, are there certain guidance lines you would advise that they start with for a successful data strategy um, for large, medium, small startup? You know, I, I kind of, I approach them all the same way and, and it gets back to the human centered approach. The first thing I do is kind of ask them where they think they are and what their problems are. Um, because I have, you know, I've talked to all sorts of companies and have different perspectives and from different industries and, and I don't want to come in and just talk at people. And so I think the first step is to understand. And even if you're within a company or you go into a role new, you need to understand the context and really where people think they are. Um, and then you go through an exercise of probing and understanding, okay, you think you're here, but really, where are you? Um, and in most cases, people are not as advanced as, the, as they, they think they are when you start asking questions about, okay, how do, you, how do you manage your data? So how do you understand everything about your customers? Or how do you understand everything about your products or your talent? Or you know, if you're a geospatial company, you're, you know, the geospatial footprint that you consume, or if you're a manufacturing company, you're the events that go through your, your manufacturing pipeline. So that's really, in my mind, besides the design thinking part, so besides that human-centered part, 
it's really conceptually understanding your data. And that gets into those, you know, there's at least three, three assets that every company has. Everyone has customers, everyone has products, and everyone has people that, that help them in some way, whether they're, you know, contractors, employees, dealers, things like that. Um, and so getting a conceptual view, I call those, you know, I add a 360 on them to be trendy and because that's what was trendy, you know, 10 years ago when I started doing this. So you build a customer 360, a product 360, a talent 360, we have a salesperson 360. Um, and, and so you build these conceptual assets. So you don't actually build them. You just conceptually map them out, understand all the data that needs to go in there. Um, and then you need to identify what are the outcomes that you're going to address. So what are the human problems that you're going to try and solve? And the output of this design thinking methodology that I keep referencing is essentially a list, a strategy, and then a list of outcomes that you're going to use to start working towards that strategy. Those outcomes require data. Um, those, those outcomes require machine learning in some cases, you know, more more elegant or or you know fancy AI in some cases, and you build out each of those components in the context of those use cases, and 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 that you know and that again that human lens, um, and the reason you do that is multifold. So one is it enables you to prove value quickly. Uh, so for instance, the team, the data science elite team that I mentioned earlier. You know, the goal is in six weeks, prove value. And in some cases, value has been a product that the group we work with sold. So, you know, Wonderman Thompson data actually literally in six weeks turned around and started selling the product with what the team built with them or just saying, OK, we know what features, you know, what data elements we need and what they how they need to be transformed in order for us to solve this problem. But but you get into this conversation about return on investment. And you, you, you're able to shift the conversation from, it's gonna take me three years and $8 million to build out this platform to in six months, I'm gonna add this value and it's gonna cost you this much money. And this is the order that you'll see the return in. And so it shifts that conversation. And it also helps with retention of your employees because now your data science teams and your data teams understand exactly how they're contributing to the strategy of the company because your AI strategy is tied to your business strategy. Your execution of that strategy is tied to your AI strategy. And so there's very clear path from here's the work I'm doing to here's how I'm helping what the, C the CEO or the minister or whoever is talking about publicly. Um, and so that's, that's the prescription that I almost always apply. Start with how are you gonna make the customer's life better, cheaper, or faster. Customer can be external customer, internal customer, and then tie that directly to how the people, to value and how the people on the ground are gonna execute it. It's, it's, it's a great point, you know, kind of working backwards from the problem to the, to the solution. Um, you know, perhaps it, it, it shouldn't surprise us so much that that is often so disconnected, uh, you know, given how much everyone is trying to do uh, all the time. But, um, but it is amazing to see how many how many kind of solutions come out uh, in search of a problem or sort of poorly scoped to the problem that they were um, in theory created to solve. Uh, I want to dive in a little bit further onto one of the points in that answer around talent. You mentioned the, the, the question of retention and of talent. Um, 
you have written elsewhere, um, I, I believe in the IBM Think blog, um, that your own goal in your, in your management and in your team building is to create diverse teams of highly technical and highly talented individuals. Uh, and that, that is because it's not only the right thing to do, um, but also because it drives better business outcomes. Uh, retention may be one of those, but I'm curious if you could just unpack that a little bit further, uh, kind of how you think about and approach diversity and, and, and what you think we all need to be thinking about in this space as we try to both um, create more diverse teams and also better outcomes. Yeah, and, and I've actually written pretty extensively in Forbes and VentureBeat and a couple other places about not just why, but how, how, you, how you do it. And, and, you know, in terms of the business outcomes, there's been a bunch of studies published in Harvard Business Review and other business journals that show that there's a direct correlation between having diverse teams and your company outperforming other companies or entities that that don't have diverse teams. In in terms of, you know, and, and that so besides that being the right thing to do, like you said, right, it it makes good good business sense. You know, and, and specifically in technical fields and, and in the field of AI, you know, we always think of this this you know this talent segment or these individuals as being scarce. And you know, and women or people of color or people from disadvantaged backgrounds being even more scarce. You know, I, I kind of call directly BS on that concept. Um, and my perspective is, you know, you're not putting in the effort to find these diverse skills, you know, these diverse individuals, and you're not structuring the job postings in a way that's accessible to everyone. And so what, what do I what do I mean by that last point? So, you know, I don't when I when I would write job postings, I always had this long laundry list of skills that I wanted people to have. And it'd be like 15 things. No one has those 15 things, right? What I really want is I want someone with two of these five programming skills, an understanding of three of these 15 database technologies. You know, understanding of these cloud platforms, you know, one or two of them, I don't need someone that has all of them. So if you lay it out as a menu and kind of say, I need two of these, three of these, one of these, it makes it much more accessible because there's been other research in Harvard Business Review and other business journals that say white men are more likely to apply for something that they're not qualified for than any other segment. And so you're essentially limiting who's going who's gonna to apply. Uh, on top of that, and I've seen this not just in theory, in practice. I've seen job postings that I had that went from zero people who weren't white dudes to a complete diverse smorgasbord of, of talent. Um, which leads to the other thing, other point that, well, there's not enough women out there. Again, I don't, I don't buy that because how many people are members, how many women are members of high ladies, right? How many women are members of our ladies? How many, Black people are members of Black in AI. And, and, it, and it goes on and on and on. There's all these organizations that have tens of or hundreds of thousands of members that fit into these diverse categories. So I don't understand how you can say there's diversity doesn't exist. I just, I just don't buy it. Um, and then you get into the hiring process. And, and there's, some, again, Harvard Business Review. Um, there's some good stats in there and some good research that's shown that when you interview people, if you have one person or one person of color 
that's in a hiring pool, they essentially have zero chance of getting hired, right? Not even 10% chance, it's essentially zero. By only adding one other person, woman or person of color to that pool, the, the, the chance they'll get hired goes up like 60 fold for women and more than 150 fold for black people. Just by having two people that fit that diversity segment and you have such a huge chance. And that's not, that's not saying we're only going to hire a woman for this job. That's just saying we're going to hire the best person out of the pool. And so the way I approach this with my teams is I, I control when people can hire. You really can't, you can't start interviewing until you've interviewed and you have a, a well, you have a diverse pool of candidates that's somewhere close to 50% diverse. That's the role of my team. I don't say you must hire someone from this segment. I don't say anything else, just you have to have a diverse pool to start hiring, then pick the best candidate. I mean, the teams we've hired have been, you know, I think the average data science team is 26% diverse. We're getting close, you know, for women, we're getting close to 50% diversity for data science in, in the teams that I've built. Um, we're not quite there in some of the other, other segments in terms of LGBTQ, in terms of black people, brown people. We're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. So we have work to do there. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's not that hard, right? Just post your jobs in the right spot post job, make job postings that are accessible um, and, and only start hiring when your pool of candidates is represents the community that you live in. Well, thank you for calling BS on that uh, common perception or misperception. Um, I think we can also all learn from your evidence-based approach to how we make sure that you do have a diverse team. Uh, as you point out, there is a business reason to do so. Your products will work better. Your uh, teams will work better. Uh, your AI will be better. Um, but I also wonder if you have, uh, if you could share your thoughts on once you've gone to all this trouble of attracting this diverse talent pool, how you retain them, how you make sure that, that they're comfortable staying on, on your team. And I also wonder if you could mention, um, you know, we talked earlier about the data sets and we know that that is the lifeblood of AI and it will constantly be iterating and that so much of the data sets we are currently using for a variety of reasons are often skewed severely heavily male and Caucasian depending on healthcare, what, what kind of data sets you're talking about. I wonder if there's also some fixes uh, data-based, evidence-based, or otherwise that you use to uh, ensure that your AI doesn't fall into those same traps of, of being uh, skewed for certain populations and, and recognizing that certain populations are not evenly uh, represented. Yeah, so I think on your first question, um, you know, diversity is relatively easy, right? You know, speaking about diversity, hiring diversity, it's, it's relatively easy. What's hard is building an inclusive culture, right? So to build a diverse team takes kind of targeted one-off effort. Building an inclusive culture takes time, consistent, you know, same kind of messaging over and over again. And, and, it, and it comes down, you know, and I, I'm not perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination, it comes down to trust. And it comes down to, to doing what you can to, in an appropriate manner, make sure that everyone's voices are heard. So for instance, you know, 
it may not be appropriate for you to call out someone on a call because they haven't been speaking, right? And may, maybe they're not speaking for a reason. Maybe they don't feel comfortable. Maybe they speak a different language. And I don't know how many of you speak second or third languages, but at least the way I do it is I under I hear it in the language that people are speaking. I translate it in my head. I answer the question and I translate it back. That's not something that I can respond to instantaneously. And so, you know, we use Slack pretty heavily here. I usually Slack people and say, look, I asked you to be on this call for a reason. I'm sure you have something to say. Will you chime in? Um, or I give people topics ahead of time if I think language is a problem. Um, you know, so I think I think that's that's important. And building that trust and that relationship is there. You also need to make sure that people are not interrupting each other. White men are more likely to interrupt people than than others. And so again, I'm not good at that. I tend to interrupt people. Luckily, my team calls me out on it. Um, and then and then there's the language we use, right? There are words and phrases that are inherently misogynistic, that are inherently racist, and and words matter, right? And 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 it's amazing how many women use misogynistic terms and don't realize it, right? And so, you know, I, I'm so adamant about it that I even remind women that, you know, this, that's, a, that's a misogynistic term. You shouldn't be using that. Here's why, here's the background. Um, and so I think you need to look at even the language you use to truly build uh, an inclusive culture. In terms of retention, once you get that inclusive culture, it's a little easier. People like to work there because you know they're they're they feel included. They feel like they have a voice. They feel like they're making a difference. At the same time, they're also getting a lot, especially in the field of data science or AI or design. They're also getting a lot of pings from everyone on LinkedIn, right? Because you know the 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 scat the talent is perceived to be scarce. Diversity is perceived to be even more scarce in the talent segment. Um, and so how do you make sure that, okay, you've built an inclusive culture that you're making sure that they are learning and growing and see a career, a, a, a direct path to how they can grow in their job. And, and the way I've always done that and we now do it as a company at IBM is we have what's called Focus Fridays. Um, and Focus Fridays means you are free to focus on what you wanna do on Fridays, be it learn to expand your skills, be it participate, you know, volunteer, um, you know, mentor, you know, do it at whatever you think is going to be best to grow you. You have that Friday time to do it. I always tell my team every month you should be taking 20% of your time about you, whatever that looks like to you. And again, I don't dictate it outside of we have trainings. It's a great time to do those trainings. They're certainly not 20% of your time. Um, so that's, that's I think, the, the, the long answer to your, your first question. The second question is obviously much more complicated. Um, arguably, or I think inarguably, the math, you know, AI and, and machine learning is made up of math. Um, math is inherently has no bias. It's just math. Um, and the, the math that you're, you're using, you're training on data. And the data is where the bias exists. And the databases themselves are not inherently biased. The bias that lives in the data and the databases comes from past decisions of humans. And so today we're dealing, and you mentioned this, today we're dealing with the consequences of decisions that were made 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago. 
And we all know that even 10 years ago, the world was very different. How we approach, you know, misogyny, racism, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, hate or you know, discrimination against people with disabilities or the LGBTQ community. Those are all ingrained in our data systems. And, and so you need to use tools to understand when that bias creeps in. And you need to recognize that you're not gonna control all biases. You probably don't want to. You're gonna control biases that are relevant to the decision that's being made, that are relevant to the society that you live in, and they're relevant to your company ethos. And you're gonna say, I'm gonna control these biases and here's tools uh, that I have to do it. And you know, we have some in the open source, we have some proprietary tools that are built to control the bias. We have no way today to remediate the data that's effective, but we can mitigate it in terms of adjusting feature weights, adjusting, you know, sometimes removing data. That, the, that, that part of bias is relatively controllable. The hard part of bias gets back to my comment about human genetics and is pervasive in medical field today in that you have under unrepresented populations. So for instance, in healthcare, we know in the US, black and brown people do not seek health care at the same rate that white people do. And so inherently our healthcare system has a lack of understanding of those communities. And when they try and target those communities, they don't really have as good of understanding of them as they do of, of the other parts, you know, the other demographics of the community. And so that's essentially a sparsity problem, right? You don't have enough data to really drive a decision using AI effectively. And so those are things that we need to be more uh, creative about how we approach. Um, and they exist in other areas too. That's just, a, a, I think, a, a good one for, for people to, to think about. Um, and, and so those, that's an area where we need to be more creative and think about how we can approach it and how we can change those behaviors so that over time, we start building data that can help those demographics. Well, we've, we've come full circle with that answer. And um, and I think it takes us back to, 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 to the beginning where we were really looking at, wow, you know, this has really changed a lot in the time that you've been working on it. Uh, it's, it's since that human genome project and those early days, um, just multiplied in complexity in scope in scale. Uh, and, 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 and fortunately also in the amount of people who are trying to solve problems and working on it and the amount of diverse people who are, who, who are, who are getting involved. Um, so what, what a great kind of tour of, of, of the space uh, through, through the lens of, of, of your career and your experiences, Seth. Thank you for that. We'd like to end with a, a question for all of our guests, which is just taking stock. Um, and I think you're a great person to ask it to because of the breadth of your exposure. Uh, so we're interested in hearing from you what you are excited about right now with respect to AI and data science, uh, what you are fearful about, um, and then what you see coming on the horizon um, that, that, that is exciting and that um, you know, we ought to be keeping an eye on, um, but maybe haven't started thinking about enough yet. Yeah, so I'm gonna start what I'm fearful of. So you know, we're, we're at this point where we have access to a tremendous amount of data in the internet. And we're thinking about, and we're actually building models that take advantage of all that information in the form of these large parameter language models, which are you know, models that are essentially being trained on the whole of the internet. Um, now, what scares me about those is we know that the internet is biased. 
It has lots of hateful stuff in it. And without intentionally focusing these large language models, you essentially train them to be misogynistic, to be biased, to be hateful. Uh, and, and so there's a couple of examples about this. If you just, just Google, you know, large parameter language models and bias or privacy concerns, you'll see them. I'm not gonna call anyone out, um, but so, so that's a problem. So how do we address that? Which I think gets to what I'm excited about. And so if we think about where technology is going and kind of what the next wave of, of advanced machine learning or AI is, we're getting into a whole field that's either, you know, you could bucket as neurosymbolic learning or as related that think of it as constraint-based learning. So I'm gonna put some constraints or context around how a model is trained so that it never learns these things. So for instance, back to the large parameter language models, you want the large parameter language models to learn about the Nazi regime so that it understands what happened and it can provide answers to questions about it. But you don't want that large parameter language model to learn how to spew hatred or the rhetoric necessarily that came out of the Nazi regime because that's, that's inherently biased. Um, and so how do you constrain the learning of a model such that it doesn't learn those things or it can't learn people's addresses and names and social security numbers? Um, and, and so, you know, the technology to do that is just now being developed and how you apply that at scale is what I'm, what I'm really excited about. And so where, where is the field going? I think the field is going towards more contextual based AI. So how do you build AI in the context of your industry, your company, you know, wh whatever you think is the best place to, that you want to build these constraints. So you have this context. So think of it as humans, right? When we, when someone asks us a question, the first thing we do is narrow it down to some manageable space. And that's why it's called neurosymbolic because it's representing, um, you know, kind of that, that perspective. Um, and then we have the whole opportunity, I'll call it, we don't even know what the application is of quantum. What impact is quantum gonna have on AI, if any? What types of questions that are intractable today will quantum, if any, will quantum be able to make tractable? You know, that's, five years out at best, where, where we'll, we'll start seeing some of that or, or not. Because um, I honestly have no idea if we're going to, if, if it's going to be able to solve some real hard problems for us or not. So, but, but I think that's, that's kind of where we're going. Um, and I guess they're all related, but I think, um, I think that's, that's kind of my perspective on that question. Well, thank you, Seth. You've taken us on a journey, as Mark said today. Uh, we really enjoyed it. You've given us so much to think about and digest, and we're really grateful for your time and the work that you're doing at IBM. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, and you guys asked the question, so you steered me on that journey. So, so great job bringing us full circle. Thanks so much, Seth. Well, Mark, I really enjoyed that discussion with Seth. What were some of the main takeaways for you? Yeah, I thought it was a great conversation. Seth is uh, someone who thinks clearly and speaks clearly, and I, I found his articulations across a number of different areas to be 
uh, just really insightful. A couple of things that jumped out. I thought, firstly, his personal story and his journey is really fascinating. Uh, it is certainly true that genetics and um, health and, and medical technologies have been on the front lines of a lot of the development of data science and AI. Uh, and to hear from someone who has started there and kind of accompanied the field as it's grown and really permeated the economy uh, was really interesting to me. Um, I thought that Seth's uh, attention on um, how companies understand their data uh, to be really refreshing. I, I think he's right that a lot of companies and others uh, start with the solution and then go and try to find the problem. Um, and I thought it was just very helpful to hear him talk through how he would advise a company on how to think about data, which really starts with the question of what are we trying to help our customer with? What are we trying to achieve? How can we make something better? Uh, last thing I'll briefly call out is I just thought his comments on hiring and diversity and diverse teams to be very thoughtful. And I am just myself going to uh, do everything I can to, to follow his advice and, and, and his evidence-based uh, advice that he gave on that, because I just thought it was, it was really the right, the right stuff. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was both interesting and the unique insights he added, as well as the common themes that we're consistently hearing about. Um, he's talking about trust. He's talking about trust on your team. He's talking about trust for your company, trust for your AI, and the various different ways that they go about building that trust. I like his discussion about the human-centered approach, which we often hear about, but he had a really uh, compelling way of breaking it down in part because of its simplicity. Who are your customers? How will they be impacted? And why will this be a benefit to them? Um, and really thinking through uh, who is going to be impacted by the product. I'm uh, grateful that he's thinking about that, given all the products he's touching and the clients he's advising. And I thought that was a really thoughtful approach. And the overall impact on culture, you know, in addition to uh, the diversity, uh, how it seems like it's part of the broader perspective that they have with their uh, Fridays of, uh, in the 20% a month time to increase your own uh, interest and, and exposure to different areas, really growing people and, and building trust in the culture as both an opportunity to maintain the talent that you work so hard to recruit and uh, build a team that, that wants to stay. So um, I, I think we learned a lot from him. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And on both that point and on the, the broader questions around AI ethics and data governance, what I really appreciated about Seth is that on these issues, which are often talked about as though they're so complex that we couldn't possibly figure it out and it's, 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 it's gonna be so hard. He was actually just very clear and he uh, simplified, I think, some of these complex challenges, which I think is a sort of, uh, a sort of call to action for all of us uh, to not get lost in this um, complexity and thinking about every possible dimension. It's true, there's a lot of complexity to AI ethics, to uh, diverse talent and diverse teams, uh, but there are also a lot of simple things that we can do and we should do. And so we should just get on with them and start doing them. Absolutely. That was both refreshing and spot on. So thank you. I really enjoyed that episode and looking forward to our next one. Looking forward to it. See you soon, Miriam. Bye, Mark. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. 
subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 